You're listening to The Myth Pilgrim, and I am Brother Lawrence of the Missionaries of God's Love. At its heart, the spiritual journey is a delightful and perilous adventure, just like the myths and fairy tales we love. This podcast is also a journey, learning from both wizards and saints, enchanted princesses and inner demons. Together, we'll discover how the great symbols of myth and fairy tale can guide us on our spiritual journey to God. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Myth Pilgrim. If you're new and just joined our little fellowship, a cheery welcome to you. It's great to have you along. Today, we explore the topic of rest, and especially the spiritual value of rest. This is a topic which is so important for our current times, but yet so rarely discussed and certainly not usually in the context of The Lord of the Rings. (laughs) But like in episode 3, you may be surprised at how much wisdom hobbits have to offer the spiritual life, especially during times of crisis. This episode will explore author J.R.R. Tolkien's own appreciation of nature's rhythms, his value on celebration, and the Christian virtue of patience, and in doing so, hopefully rediscover the place of rest in our lives, even amidst absolute chaos and busyness. I thought I'd start by reading you a passage. It takes place in chapter 7 of book 1 of the trilogy. It is a scene in Tom Bombadil's cottage, after the four hobbits, so Frodo, Sam, Pippin and Merry, had just had probably the most adventurous and daring and dangerous day of their lives. They leave the comfort of their home in the Shire for the first time. They are chased down by black riders and then suddenly get ambushed by a willow tree. While fighting off the tree, they are suddenly rescued by the mysterious and cheery Tom Bombadil and his wife Goldberry. This following scene takes place in the safety of Tom and Goldberry's cottage. So, settle back, relax, and let this scene permeate your imagination. Before long, washed and refreshed, the hobbits were seated at the table, while at either end sat Goldberry and the master. It was a long and merry meal. Though the hobbits ate as only famished hobbits can eat, there was no lack. The drink in their drinking bowls seemed to be clear cold water, yet it went into their hearts like wine and set free their voices. Their guests became suddenly aware that they were singing merrily, as if it was easier and more natural than talking. At last, Tom and Goldberry rose and cleared the table swiftly. The guests were commanded to sit quiet and were set in chairs, each with a footstool to his tired feet. There was a fire in the wide hearth before them, and it was burning with a sweet smell, as if it were built of apple wood. When everything was set in order, all the lights in the room were put out, except one lamp and a pair of candles at each end of the chimney shelf. Then Goldbury came and stood before them, holding a candle, and she wished them each a good night and a deep sleep. Skip forward a few passages of dialogue, and then Tom says this to the hobbits. That is right. Now is the time for resting. Some things are ill to hear when the world is in shadow. Sleep till the morning light rest on the pillow. Heed no nightly noise, fear no grey willow. And with that, he took down the lamp and blew it out. And grasping a candle in each hand, he led them out of the room. 
There, mattresses and pillows were soft as down, and the blankets were of white wool. They had hardly laid themselves on the deep beds and drawn the light covers over them before they were fast asleep. What I just read out is just one part of many entire chapters describing the hobbits at rest. One of the many curiosities of the Lord of the Rings is this that despite the story being about a world at war, despite the urgency of the main plot to destroy the ring and despite the heroes being endlessly pursued by the enemy, Tolkien still scatters these resting scenes or chapters across his great work. This is most noticeable in The Fellowship of the Ring. Though they are still there in the other two books as well. As a way of illustrating this pattern, let me trace for you the main plot of the story in Book One. The story starts off in the Restful Shire. Then the hobbits depart and are pursued by black riders and ambushed by a willow tree. And then there's this resting scene in Tom's cottage. Then there's more action involving Strider and more black rider chases and the flight across the ford. Then there's the resting in the elven sanctuary of Rivendell. Then there's the Fellowship's first adventures, their fracturing, being chased down by orcs and balrogs, and then there's the resting scene inside the high elven forest of Lothlorien, and so on and so forth. It's as if Tolkien's story has a rhythm to it that gives us time to rest, to recover and to savour all that has just happened. I'd even say his work has a rhythm of breathing breathing in, breathing out, breathing in. <laughs> Wrong episode. Indeed, Tolkien's work is natural and organic, following the rhythm of action, rest, action, rest. See if you notice this next time you read or watch the story. Now, whether we can achieve this rhythm and how we achieve it amidst the pressures of work and career and kids and mortgages and sicknesses and pets, that's another matter. I'm merely here pointing out an important fundamental desire, a principle that every soul is automatically drawn towards. So, all of this is just as a way of laying a foundation, because for the rest of this episode, I'm going to present a handful of ways that hobbits, and indeed the good guys in general, can teach us about the spiritual value of rest. The first thing they can teach us is to learn about rest from creation itself. What? Are you saying I have to go outside in order to rest? Not quite. Let me explain. But first, notice that pretty much all those locations where the characters rested in Book One, the Shire, Tom Bombadil's Cottage, Rivendell, Lothlorien, they are all built in close proximity to the natural created world. Their inhabitants worked closely to the land and dwelled in harmony with the natural landscape. Think of the simple hobbit holes and paddocks in the Shire with its simple agrarian setup. Think of the beautiful scenery of Rivendell, nestled inside a valley of flowing streams with evenings filled with a faint scent of trees and flowers as if summer still lingered in Elrond's gardens. Ah. Think of Frodo falling asleep in the treetops of Lothlorien, lulled by the wind in the boughs above and the sweet murmur of the falls of Nimrodell below. Why am I telling you all this? I'm not saying that the only way we can find rest is to literally go outside into our gardens or to escape into some park somewhere, as helpful as this may be. Rather, I'm saying that appreciating creation itself can teach us a lot about rest. Why? Because God's creation itself follows a particular rhythm of work and rest. For example, 
There is day and there is night, a time to be active and a time to be passive. There is the cycle and rhythm of seasons, a time for sowing and a time for reaping, a time for death and a time for life. Bracket. Insert Bible quote from Ecclesiastes. <laughs> I forgot. <laughs> um, I think it's in Ecclesiastes 3 if you wanted to look up that passage about a time for all things and a season for all things. See, in God's creation, nothing can actually ever be rushed, even if we feel it should. We cannot hurry a butterfly out of its cocoon or it'll die. We cannot pull an ear of corn out to make it grow faster, for it too will die. Everything is preordained for its time. And when we're in God's creation, in humility, we are the ones that must learn to enter into its rhythm. To do so is both humbling, but also so freeing. I might add here, this is why when things are falling apart in our lives and aren't going well, sometimes gazing up at the night stars um, you'll find is extremely freeing and liberating because despite the fact that we're not in control of a lot of things that are going wrong in our lives, we remember that by looking and entering into the rhythm of God's creation that God is in control and that in the end we only participate in the grand rhythm of the created universe and that sets us free from having to try and control everything. That's me anyway. As a brother living consecrated life today, I am in a unique position to observe both within myself and in the culture around me just how workaholic we are, even in the church, even in our prayer lives. We unconsciously value activity and being busy more than rest and contemplation. Yet all our greatest saints constantly remind us that a healthy spiritual life is both active and passive, both a breathing in and a breathing out. If we lack one or the other, we'll run out of puff real soon. See, even in a healthy prayer life, it has to be both active and passive. For prayer is both the active human reaching out to God, but also our passive receiving of God's grace and listening to his voice. Not just us speaking, but also us listening. I'm personally convinced that one of the greatest obstacles in our spiritual lives today is us trying to be active in a part of our lives where God is actually intending us to be passive. Now this might be in regards to a particular struggle in our lives or a relationship or another type of breakthrough. But perhaps as a starting point to remedy all this, we could try and spend more time being passive in nature and meditating on the natural rhythm of God's creation, which is both active and passive. And as a fun sort of alternative to doing this, you could spend one day maybe watching the first 30 minutes of the Fellowship of the Ring and asking the Lord while you do so, why does observing the simple life in the Shire have such a calming effect on me? The second thing we can learn about the spiritual value of rest from hobbits is celebration. Right in the middle of this fat trilogy, there is a chapter called Flotsam and Jetsam, which describes our heroes having a sort of celebration party after they successfully take over the Tower of Isengard. The entire chapter captures how the heroes dig into the delicious storeroom of Saruman, enjoying bacon and salted pork, smoking pipeweed and draughts of beer, and sharing songs and stories. Even though the world is still in peril, 
they recognize the necessity to momentarily pause and celebrate their milestone, and to appreciate the simple charms of life. Now, there's an old Christian saying that when you feast, you should feast, and when you fast, you should fast. And there is great and profound wisdom in this saying. Despite the tumultuous waves of two thousand years of world history, including wars and revolutions and famines and discoveries and breakthroughs, the church's calendar, year after year, is still punctuated with seasons of celebration. For example, Easter tide and the feast day of saints, as well as seasons of great penance. For example, Lent and every Friday. It is neither healthy or virtuous to only feast. Nor is it healthy or virtuous to only fast. Neither is it healthy or virtuous to try and do both at the same time. Using an image borrowed from Father Tony Schick, which some of you met from his talk on dragons, when we try and feast and fast at the same time, or when we try and work and rest at the same time, it's a little bit like trying to breathe in and breathe out at the same time. It doesn't work. But how comfortable are we today to intentionally suspend all work, to simply celebrate the goodness of life, to take time to appreciate everything we do have, despite everything we feel we don't have? For rest aside, gratitude itself is a gigantic spiritual virtue stamped into our soul's DNA right from the Book of Genesis. Borrowing the words from philosopher Joseph Pieper, in leisure. Man too celebrates the purpose of his work by allowing his inner eye to dwell for a while upon the reality of creation. He looks and he affirms, "It is good." If we understand gratitude to lie at the very heart of spiritual rest, then rest is no longer seen as something we do so we can get back to work. Rather, rest itself is seen as a valuable thing. The most valuable thing of all. The third way that Hobbes teaches how to rest is a little trickier to express. It's something about trust, trust that despite the real urgency of their mission, the Hobbes knew that there were greater forces at work that were carrying their mission, that all they needed to do was to faithfully play their part. And all will be well, and all manner of things will be well," quoting Julian of Norwich. One never gets the sense that the fellowship were rushed in any way in the way they went about their mission. They were committed and focused, but they were never impatient. Remember what Gandalf said to Frodo in the Fellowship of the Ring: "There are other forces at work in this world, Frodo, besides the will of evil. Bilbo was meant to find the ring, in which case you too were also meant." To have it, and that is an encouraging thought. Likewise, when we realize that we are part of a greater story than our own, we realize that impatience and rushing about actually doesn't further the story in any way at all. It only frustrates us. Rather, spiritual rest teaches us instead to trust and to wait, to know that God's timing is always perfect and His provision always adequate. One of my great heroes, Saint John Paul II, exemplified this sort of attitude with his entire life. Now, being the Pope during our darkest century, you'd think that if anyone had the right to be busy and rushed, it would be him. And yet, he was not. Quite the opposite. 
He spent up to four hours in prayer every day and bothered his assistants and aides to no end. But because despite the clockwork tight schedule of a public diplomat, he would suddenly sit himself down to pray or interrupt the tour of a new seminary by beelining towards the chapel where the Blessed Sacrament was exposed. See, when a man is living in God's will, God's rhythm, there is no such thing as rush and impatience. I wonder if John Paul II ever read The Lord of the Rings. Or, more likely, both Tolkien and John Paul II were drawing from the restful wellspring of the same Catholic tradition. If you're enjoying this episode of The Myth Pilgrim, please subscribe to it so you can stay up to date with all the latest episodes. If you'd like to be notified by email every time a new episode is released, hop onto the website at themythpilgrim.com to register. Here's a final thought for you. The notion of rest isn't just punctuated in the actual story of The Lord of the Rings. It is also punctuated in the way the story is written. Even reading it forces us readers to be restful, especially at certain key moments. I was first introduced to The Lord of the Rings through Peter Jackson's movies, but when I tried to tuck into the books over the summer holidays, I honestly found myself rather bored and stuck and unable to get past even the first few chapters, because, as some of you know, Tolkien spends like the first 50 pages and prologue rather laboriously describing the life of hobbits and the Shire without much action taking place. And just when you thought some action was going to happen, a long poem or a song would punctuate it all and you would just be like, ah, just get on with it. I wish I could say I read at least some of those poems in full, but I didn't. I considered them a nuisance to the real point of the story, which was the action. Yet it was only years later that I asked myself, why did I care so much about the action of the books? I already knew the story backwards and can probably tell you the scene sequence in my sleep. Then I realised that perhaps the way The Lord of the Rings was written was in some way meant to slow us down, to be a type of rest. This seems all the more likely when you realise how much Tolkien himself was particularly disillusioned by the way his beloved England had transformed into an industrial machine after the Second World War, worshipping the gods of efficiency and productivity for their own sake. Perhaps Master Tolkien wanted his readers to slow down, to be inefficient, to be restful, to be grateful, even in those long poems and songs. Anyway, when I reread The Lord of the Rings with that lens in mind, it was quite a different experience. I could suddenly savour the beauty and detail and charm of the story, every detail, every line, like never before. And hopefully with this lens in mind, you can try reading it again too. So unlike previous endings of episodes, I seem to have already scattered many practical pilgrim suggestions for you to try. For example, meditating on the rhythm of creation, spending time in nature, praying with the Shire scenes in the first movie, and rereading The Lord of the Rings with a contemplative lens. But just in case none of these speak to you, a final suggestion for you could be reflecting on how you spend your Sundays. We can all ask ourselves this question. What structures or habits can I put in place to make sure that my Sundays are actually a time of rest? How can I ensure the rhythm of activity during the week can suspend as God intended so that I can practice the virtues of being passive, receptive and grateful? So yes, let's all see how we go with that one. And until next time, dear pilgrim, journey forth, take care and God bless.